Hi, and welcome to the Shifting Lens podcast, where we're reviewing the animal experience. Today, we have an amazing, awesome, fantastic guest that I'm so excited to share with you all. Um, today, we have Dr. Margot DeMello. She is an assistant professor at Carroll College in the anthrozoology department. And we've invited Margot on today to talk to us about cryptids. And just so I think we're all on the same page, Margot, would you do us the favor of sort of explaining what cryptids are and, and sort of how that meshes with anthrozoology? Um, sure, cryptids are just um, hidden creatures. So animals that we either don't know about yet or knew about at one time and they might still be around, but we're not terribly sure. Um, um, they're um, certainly a part of anthrozoology in the sense that cryptids are often, not always, but mostly based in, um, in animals and in non-human animals. And maybe even more importantly for us, um, you can kind of break them down into beasts versus hybrids. And um, there's just a little bit more of them that are human animal hybrids and they are just quote unquote beasts. Um, so the fact that every culture on the planet has not just a, you know, a, a mythology and a set of monsters and um, you know creatures that inhabit the supernatural realm, but they also all seem to have um, those in which those uh, creatures are based in the animal world and have seem to have a foothold in the natural world as well as the sort of supernatural world. Um, all of that makes it super, super important for us to look at. That's so cool. Is there, any, is there any specific cryptid that you're drawn towards? I'm sure as you read them all and you sort of hear about all these different cultures and their experiences and their, their creatures out there, what are you drawn to? Um, I'm both sort of simultaneously drawn to the sort of hyper-local ones, the ones that are um, very specific to the place and the culture in which they originated. So Bunyip in Australia is um, kind of uh, right now near and dear to my heart. Uh, but then on the other hand, I'm also really intrigued by the universal ones or, you know, as universal as, as we're going to talk about right now. Um, so on the one hand, I'm going to say the Bigfoots, which are kind of rooted in the um, sort of zoological world because they're assumed to be living and real. And then I'm also really interested in mermaids um, who come from a different world, right? They're the mythological world. Yes, there have been loads of sightings, but most people today have shifted them from the folklore to the myth or from what we once thought were creatures that shared a world with us into this world of, of the other. Um, anyway, so those are kind of the two sort of poles that I'm interested in is, is those ones that, um, you know, seem to hit with so many kind of universal themes that we find them in so many other cultures. And then those that are so, so specific that we couldn't imagine them in another place. That's so cool. I've, I'm starting to get all these questions, but I don't want to just take over the conversation. Rebecca and Tiamat are also here with us. And do you guys have any thoughts on this? I mean, it's just such a fantastic topic on multiple levels. Yeah, I mean, I just I was just skimming through Samantha Hearn's book, uh, talking about cryptozoology and preparation for this podcast. And it just made me think about how, you know, looking through the cryptozoology lens, so to speak, can almost force us to step back or step away from the usual way we look at things or the usual lens that we have and question our entanglements perhaps with the natural world, world uh, especially now in these kind of <laughs> these times where we're, you know, the natural world is going through so much that we're 
it's almost like one extreme so that we're sort of thinking in this one extreme and I say extreme for us sort of in the Western, westernized thought. It's almost like one extreme for us to think that way, to think about mermaids and to think about, you know, Bigfoot just as an example of one where we think, oh, that, that surely can't exist. But if we do are kind of open to that, maybe when we take that mentality back to our other research that isn't with cryptids, it might open up the way we, we view it and are more open perhaps to other ways of knowing or other ways of researching. That's sort of what ran through my mind this morning when I just skimmed that chapter. Well, I think, I think it, it sort of to, to respond to that a little bit, I think it um, makes sense a bit that cryptozoology exploded in the 70s um, in this, um, in the West, let's say, or in the, you know, the yeah. global North. Um, at a time when we have these other really important uh, social movements emerging that are both about the self, but are also about consciousness about the planet. So we've got, you know, the men's movement and, you know, the, the gay rights movement and women's movement, but also um, deep ecology and these other kinds of movements are happening at that time. So we've got sort of a longing for a connection um, to the wild and also starting to get a sense of a realization of the losses that we're starting to experience in the very early days of this. And I think that it makes sense then that um, uh, cryptozoology would really emerge as an important force kind of at that time, um, certainly in the popular culture, but also, um, um, you know, that's kind of where it really took off. Mm. That's so interesting because I didn't even think about when uh, it started and what the overlap was. Is. I mean, <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s where it was like, oh, X-Files and that sort of thing. It was all about the sensationalism, not the, the intersection that was occurring um, when we were all sort of trying to find our place at that point. Wow. I'm going well, to have to reevaluate this is, the 70s and 80s. <laughs> Yeah, this is for me, this is a lot of speculation. It's also because I wrote about that time period pretty heavily in my own dissertation. And so it's kind of all coming back to me that it makes sense that it really emerged at that time. I mean, as you guys know, there's not a lot of scholarly stuff written on either the community, you know, itself, um, um, or the creatures, except in the natural sort of sciences sense. So it's like if, you know, the lens through which it's always typically looked at in, again, in our world is, um, are they real or are they not real? And so let's spend a lot of time now devoting, you know, kind of empirical methods to try to understand whether these guys are real or not. I'm not so much interested in that, although obviously I would love for them to be real and love for as many of these creatures to be around as possible. But, um, but this is, to, to me, um, that lens it's just not that kind of productive for why they're important and why they've captured the imagination. That's why we have to turn to these other lenses, right? So for me, it would be through anthropology and folklore, you know, but on the other hand, we could just as easily go through psychology. We could look at the nature of moral panics and mass hysteria, because mm -hmm. we gotta be honest, some of that plays a role in, um, in this. So to me, um, a natural science lens isn't as useful as a social science and also humanities, um, lens to try to understand a little bit more about what's what's happening here and to always situate it again in what's going on um, in the times because they're clearly even if you know the cryptozoologists are always trotting out the kind of the Native American legends um, they, they, you know the reality is we're looking at a much more contemporary movement. Hmm. I wonder also what and I, I don't know anything about this it's just sort of an open question 
I wonder what role religion plays in that as well. And sort of if people, if there are people who are going from coming from that angle, looking at, I mean, again, I don't know anything about this, but I'm sure that with a lot of these, these cryptids, people kind of connect something, uh, the devil, or I'm just sort of throwing things out there, but you know, these kinds of connections that are made and the roles that that play in their, in their right. culture. And well, their... you know, if we want to get, go, go to it from a psychological perspective, which I think we have to do at least in part, um, um, cryptids just like sort of the mythological and the folklore creatures before them tap into our anxieties right so sexuality is a huge one um last night i was um um immersed in werewolf stuff i was just watching a bunch of you know it's saturday nights to get a bunch of horror movies but i like to try to make sure that they you know mesh a little bit anyway so we've got sexuality <laughs> is obviously an important anxiety we've got evil the nature of evil um mm. and then um what it is to be human um, and, and, and how that is defined vis-a-vis -vis what is not human. And then again, the cryptid, um, especially the hybrids, you know, trouble that uh, issue. So to me, there's just, oh, and also nature, you know, the fear of the wild. So, so to me, these um, sort of psychological anxieties, collective psychological anxieties also play a big role in terms of what monsters emerge and what stories we're telling about them and through them. That's mm. yeah, fascinating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely like really? the idea of that, that hybrid being in a place, in a margin between what we consider to be human and not to be human. And I think one of the things that really has interested me in the past, I, I would say 10 years or so, it's kind of exploded, is this, this fascination with vampire and mm. vampire flicks and mm -hmm. not treating it so much as something to be afraid of, but as something to glorify. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, I, I'd love to know your thoughts on that, but also I was kind of thinking that speaks to how we view even animals that we know for a fact exist and how we glorify mm. the experience of that natural. I feel like the way that, um, vampires and werewolves, if you look at something like Twilight, for example, have been treated is to kind of put them in that, that category of fascination for positive reasons, as well as for fears. And I'm just, I'm wondering what your thoughts well, are on like the building of that. I mean, who's the audience for all of those, you know, movies and texts is um, teenage girls and young women. Um, so, you know, and, and the vampire and the werewolf both clearly speak to the, um, the fears of sexuality, of, of um, emergent sexuality. So, you know, again, um, even though those stories are far, far older, if we just look at when they became popular in horror movies in this country, of course, it was the time when teenagers were emerging as a social force. Um, we've never had teenagers as a consumer group, as an important demographic group in this country before the post-world period, right? And so um, all of those, you know, the, um, um, the Hammer movies, they came out then, and the Universal Monsters, they were then, and, um, you know, and, and, and if we take the werewolf in particular, then we think about the, the, the ways in which the werewolf then kept being played with. I was a teenage werewolf, which is kind of the most perfect one. 
you're a teenager, you're going through all these transformations physically and emotionally, and what better way to represent that through, right, the body of the werewolf, um, who then, as you're suggesting today, has gone from a sort of um, um, implicit representation of um, dangerous teenage sexuality to today to as kind of explicit and on your face as you possibly can be with the Twilight stuff. Um, they're, they're, they're sexual beings and they're there to, you know, entice the teenage girls. Anyway, that's mm. just, you know, just mm. focusing on just that little part of it. Fascinating. There's so many, there's so many angles to come at this from. And <laughs> I mean, one of the, one of the most, you know, kind of notable of the werewolf cases was the beast of Jevuda. I don't speak French, so I totally, oh. maybe you can just do one of those crazy sleep things right over my place. At any rate, so this was, um, 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 18th century pre-revolutionary France, we have this beast um, that is, you know, variously described as either a, just a super, super huge wolf or again, a, you know, bipedal kind of human wolf hybrid um, attacking only women and children. Over a hundred villagers were ultimately killed in the about three years where the beast was, was active, um, only women and children. So you can on the one hand, just take the well, Let's just look at predation attacks, you know, of course we're going over with the vulnerable, but that's not how it was played out in the press. The way it was played out in the press was it was um, girls and women, girls and women, even though of course there were boys, but it was girls and women. So there was already this sexual um, kind of overlay to the story that was part of it right from the beginning. And it was one of the reasons why, uh, uh, you know, King Louis the 16th, who kind of had better things to worry about at this time because his country's around <laughs> him, sent, um, you know, highly trained hunters to that region of France. He didn't give a crap about um, poor people and peasants being killed, but that's kind of an assault on French, French femininity a little bit, right? That we're allowing this monster to just um, pick off and allegedly sexually assault, supposedly some of the bodies were sexually assaulted, which, Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, it turns out his hunter didn't actually do the job. He did kill a wolf, sent it back to Versailles. It stunk up the place because they didn't know how to, you know, taxidermy it right. And um, anyway, it wasn't even the right animal because he kept being killed after that. But, oh, and then by that time, things were really bad for him. So he just kind of washed his hands of the affair. But the fact that it rose to the level of his attention, I think is pretty notable. There's there's so much to unpack. <laughs> So much. There's so much to unpack in that. Well, I, I saw a documentary. I was watching just a documentary that was talking about the, the beast. And um, one of the local people that they were talking to was, you know, it was like 1767. And he was like, you know, he was trying to totally put the whole off as just a media thing, which, of course, the media, of course, of course, played a role in right building the story up because this was the time when you had those broadsheets and, you know, the penny novels and all that business anyway so um oh but what he was saying was oh there was nothing going on and so it was just a big, big media thing the media needed to report something on being there's nothing going on the 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 you know king's head is going to be on a spike uh in a couple of decades and we're going to be funding the american revolution which is already starting and like what anyway <laughs> But again, it all plays a part. All of it plays a part. The media clearly plays a part in what we think about these animals. It sort of reminds me of the all those conversations about like the mountain men and the the wolfy. These sort of there's there seems to be that sort of thread going through 
internationally in a way in that that image of the oh the poor women and this is this, <laughs> this creature coming and and I'm trying. I've been trying to recall what it is that I want to refer to, but I think there's been many situations where they went out to kill this monster or this beastly thing, and they ended up killing a wolf. Or sure, many I mean, cases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or other comparable animals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, history is just littered with the bodies of. Let's just focus on the chupacabra. How many um, poor, you know, mange-ridden coyotes and dogs have been killed? Because I've seen them. Um, you know, and those are. Um, one woman in Texas has one that's mounted in her living room, and it's a rabbit—not rabbit. It's a—it's a mange-ridden coyote, and she has it um, displayed as a chupacabra in her room. Um, I forgot why I was just mentioning that, though, to relate to what you said. I completely forgot. But at any rate, that <laughs> obviously the misidentification, you know, intentional or right. not, um, you know, clearly results in yeah, the, the deaths of loads and loads of animals. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm also really fascinated with that, that the local knowledge of in many cases where the locals know that these cryptids are just these animals, these living animals exist there and they might have a really detailed understanding of these animals and they live amongst them and, and whatnot. And then you have this science of like the all-knowing scientists, but oftentimes I feel like the locals, they surely know more about these animals, right? Than, than someone who's coming in with their, their spreadsheets and they're right. wanting to take pictures of everything. And, but yeah, it's right. Except I wish if, we're, if we're talking about certain kinds of animals like your wolves um, um, or big cats in other areas, the, um, yes, we kind of want to say that, that the local people have lived a long time for forever. But on the other hand, for, for animals that um, have become redefined solely as threats to livestock and as, um, you know, as, as, as Europe changed and the forest became more of a source of fear rather than a place you went for, you know, to get resources, right. um, that's going to, you know, not just paint a different picture of those animals, but then again, the people's, the local people will have, um, their relationship with them isn't kind of what it once yeah. was or, yeah, yeah. 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 And that would surely also affect it if you're going there to, to research this, if the locals are having issues that they're feeling like these animals are eating your crops or there's other conflict going on or they're coming and right. bothering your women or whatever. Right, and I think part of the local people's response to the cryptid has to do with, you know, so, so typically when we hear about a cryptid, it's from two things. It's witness sightings of the actual creature or it's um, predation, usually dead animals, right? Usually livestock, because that's classic. Cryptid. It's not so great if your cat has been disemboweled. It's really good if you've got the, um, you know, the dead cow. Anyway, um, so, um, oh, so, so then your response is also going to be based on that. How much are these animals a threat? Um, they're a threat when you're finding your livestock killed, um, when it's um, their appearances, but not a direct threat to you when you just see, let's say again, the cats, because we have so many witness sightings of the big cats. Um, that tends to, um, I feel like, um, do something different with the witnesses. Um, there's more, I think, of an interest and an excitement. And that's when those are the animals who then become either cultural or national kind of icons that tend to represent a locality. However, you 
don't have that when they're killers, when they kill animals or kill people, then you do not, uh, you know, put statues up and you don't kind of welcome them as part of your community the way that so many communities have their own, right, little kind of mascot mm -hmm. cryptid. Um, that doesn't happen when they're killing you. Maybe if they killed in the past, even right now, by the way, back to the Jevaudet thing in France, if you go there, there is in fact a big bronze of the wolf, but only, mm -hmm. this is what's interesting also, so the it's a bronze of the wolf with a little girl. Ah. Um, I thought that since I'm on a podcast today, he should put the loud dogs in the room with me. Yes, yeah, naturally. In the other room. There's some sort of interesting thing happening in this house. Um, <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, oh, but anyways, but it's a little girl holding some kind of a spear or something like that, indicating that it's a little girl who killed the beast, which is so interesting huh. because the little girl was part of why we had to be concerned about the beast was that the beast was eating our girls. And now the right. little girl has sort of turned around almost like that statue of the bull and the little girl in, um, you know, Manhattan on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's very much like that, except you know, three centuries before in a very different cultural context. Fascinating. So, so in talking about the whole thing about the monster, the beast versus the reverence of certain ones, what is the whole deal with Bigfoots, with, with humanoid um, others? I'm curious about that. Yeah, so to me, that almost goes into a total area of its own. Mm -hmm. um, so first off, we've got an almost universal belief in a human type of a creature, a human primate type of a creature. Um, so that kind of makes it unique. But the other thing that makes it unique is that, um, again, I'm gonna say this is as, as, as flat out speculation. I think that part of what's going on is that the Bigfoot got to take off after primatology or, or sort of Jane Goodall and leaky sort of level primatology was mainstreamed enough so that people have this understanding that creatures like this lived in the past. So this, again, the seventies was such an important time for this. This is the time when everybody's yeah. grandpa had boxes in National Geographic in their basement, <laughs> and, you know, that whole kind of time period, right? Where, where, where popular science is really kind of important. Um, and so this is the time, I think, uh, when Bigfoot emerged. So again, part of it has to do with the, the social movements that are happening at that time, including a very serious concern about, you know, nature. You know, we've got, again, the ecology movement and Rachel Carson and all that kind of stuff that had already started out. Um, and, and we have an understanding that, A, we, we're not the only human-like creatures on the planet. Um, and so now there's this kind of intriguing idea that we, at one point, and this is where Neanderthals and, and a poor understanding of Neanderthals also comes into play, that if we lived at one point alongside of other humanoids, then why couldn't that still be the case today? So to me, that would never have taken off to the way that it has today without the understanding as often kind of problematic as it is of not just Neanderthals, but these days they're dragging out the Denisovians and you know what I mean? They're talking about um, all of this, the, the um, you know, the Indonesian hobbits and, you know, is another way to say, look, this has happened in the past. So this is, again, these are the cryptozoologists who, and this is, is, is part of that transformation from cryptozoology to just a fringe nut field to trying to make it a real scientific discipline. So that process of legitimacy is actively, actively happening. And it's these creatures that it has its most potential in. You know, I think that probably most cryptozoologists, if you got them, you know, cornered in the, you know, 
bathroom at the Ramada Inn at the conference would admit to you that maybe the Mothman, maybe there's not a real one, maybe. But Bigfoot is, I think, a very, very different matter. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, and this is why anthropology has become such an important discipline to the Bigfoot folks um, in a way that I think you do not see with, with the other cryptids, you know? Is there, is there some, this might be a very, very, very silly question, but is there some overlap with discussions surrounding aliens and these kinds of things with, with cryptozoology? Is it something that's just sort of on planet earth or is it kind of yeah, and this is um, intergalactic. A place I probably shouldn't speak to right now because I haven't. So you know, part of my dream, and and when I first started this project, it was right before COVID, and I'd already you know been planning conventions that I was going to go to, and you know, because I wanted like to be around cryptozoologists because there's very little at all written on cryptozoologists. Um, anyways, of course, all that went down the toilet. Um, and so anything that I say about this is, is speculation. Um, it seems to me that there are um, um, shared connections among a number of cryptozoologists. So if you're ever interested in something that's not mainstream, that's something that is either ignored by mainstream science or has been, you know, debunked, or you know, by mainstream science certainly stigmatized, then um, you're automatically going to have right some suspicion and a little. You're you're already going to be in an oppositional position vis-a-vis -vis kind of mainstream science. That then often extends to government because government funds scientific research in some cases. And so um, there's certainly links to these, I think, feelings of suspicion towards authorities, towards those mm -hmm. who traditionally control the production of knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, that is clearly happening in this community at the same time that they want to legitimize themselves and become seen as a scientific discipline alongside the rest of us. Um, so right. what, which, which I think is so fun too, because then that makes the cryptids are obviously already liminal creatures. That's of course they are, but the cryptozoologists are too, just kind of like we are too. Um, you right. know what I mean? Because they're lay people, but they want to be uh, seen as scientists uh, with scientific legitimacy, um, it's, you know, they're obviously in a really, really difficult position. Um, and, mm -hmm. and the fact that they're already, again, speculation, hostile to, um, you know, kind of mainstream scientific work because of the fact that they're excluded from it, um, I think makes some sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. I mean, yeah. again, speculation. I haven't done right, a single yeah. interview with a single cryptozoologist. Right, no, right. but I really love that you went there, though, because I think it's sort of the taboo even about talking about it today. It's, oh, we're talking about this thing that's kind of fringe, and isn't it just something that weirdos are into? And it's like, no, actually, but we can look at it through an academic lens, and we can try and bridge that gap and, and dig around and see what's in there. And I mean, I just love that that's what you're looking at because you're right. I think, you know, and I think students and anyone else listening to this are like, oh, wow, like that's not off limits. That's something that is, you know, valid, you know, deserves to have um, people look at it and, and look at it, you know, 
without necessarily just trying to say, oh, these are just a bunch of crazy wackos that are trying to trying to dabble in science. So I love it. I just I think I mean, it, is, cool. it is, you know, I think really kind of instrumental and interesting to look at some of the moves that, the, that they're doing. <laughs> rhetorical moves, what are the disciplines that they gravitate towards? Some people like just on the Bigfoot front are all about the locomotion and, you know, have, you know, delved into, a, you know, again, a legitimate kind of area of science in order to, you know, analyze the tracks and stuff like that. I mean, you know, it it's so interesting because the fact that we're trying to use that the, a lot of cryptozoologists are, are using scientific methods to try to, you know, drag this creature from the world of folklore into, you know, zoology into the real world. Um, it, it's just, it's very interesting because they're doing that within a context of, um, um, you know, we're trying to use scientific methods again to let's say analyze a print when that print, we don't have any understanding of how it was created and, you know, and, and if we're talking about like comparing it to like, say the criminal justice world and you've got right a chain of evidence and all this kind of stuff that has to happen in order for something to move from evidence to actually being, you know, something that, that is decent data. And here it's all happening in, and, and I, I'm not trying to be insulting here, but kind of a little bit of a fairy world um, where um, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're mixing different levels in a way that I think is interesting. We're mixing on the one hand, again, locomotion and, you know, some scat studies with, you know, Native American legends. So, you know, it's extraordinary how many white um, cryptozoologists seem to have an understanding of, um, you know what I mean, indigenous um, folklore. You know, of course, it's, it's chosen and deployed very specifically for very specific reasons. Um, but it's interesting, again, in a way that science never does, but which I think is super appealing and interesting because it's sort of what I gravitate towards. It's mixing these different worlds. We're going to explain the existence of a creature partly through the, you know, the language of natural science, but partly also through the language of folklore and partly also, you know, and I just think that's, I just think it's a, um, it's, it's yeah. an interesting strategy, even if it was never, you know, planned in that way, but it's become a really interesting kind of hodgepodge of different, um, you know, methods and stories and um, tools that are all put together in this interesting little stew. That's why I kind of want to, if they're not that expensive, take one of those classes to get a certificate myself so I can see what that is like, how that plays itself out in the training. Yeah, yeah. It'd be very interesting to go through the process of, of becoming a cryptozoologist and see the methodology that's taught in mm -hmm. that context. I've looked at ghost hunters a little bit, and some of it is is sort of the same. The ghost hunters, it seems to me, um, are, are engaged in a little bit of that same kind of a move in the same, by the way, exact period of time since the 70s. Um, interesting. Um, and you know, and they've got, you know, their kit full of all their scientific scientific equipment and all that kind of stuff, but they have to deploy that alongside of their, um, you know, folkloric knowledge about ghosts. You, so you all already are combining, you know, methods and, and tools from two different, very different worlds into one. And, you know, which is of course, one of the reasons why you know, I can't imagine that ghost hunters will ever actually be accepted as any kind of scientists um, mm. because they're doing something that we don't allow. 
Would you say, and I understand you haven't, you know, conducted the interviews and all of that yet, but does it come across as if cryptozoology is more of a white space if you look at it from those oh, trying yeah. to be more academic? Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and, and part of it also, and this is what makes it also, I think even more interesting is it's also rural, right? Because crypt cryptids are by definition rural animals, you know? Um, and so the people who find them and the people who study them and the people who see them, the witness reports, everything are, you know, heavily skewed towards rural. So um, there's just that is just the basis kind of demographic difference. But as we know, that is associated with loads of other differences with respect to beliefs and all that stuff. So absolutely, it's a white space. It's also a Again, I haven't seen any kind of demographic tables, but I'm going to suggest that it's a conservative space, um, which is interesting. Um, yeah. Also, I'm going to suggest it's a male space because so many of the um, of the uh, witnesses are hunters, um, and you know, it's often it's that yeah. first eyewitness experience that be turns one onto the path, right, of becoming a cryptozoologist. And so we have kind of a natural progression from a, you know, a rural, more conservative, um, outdoor oriented hunter um, that, that, that they dominate, right, the field in that way. Mm. Um, so that that already makes them kind of categorically different sort of from some other groups. Now, the alien stuff seems to me also happens in rural areas. So again, do you have that exact same population from the surface? It kind of seems like it, but I don't know. Um, you know, but most people don't see aliens in big cities, you know, except on the, you know, the big invasion, then we're all going to get to see them. Right. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So much stuff I hadn't even thought of before, but yeah, quite new to this topic yeah. I mean that's it's 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 fun for me because um I I watch a lot of tv because I always have and I always have done it and I've always um uh justified it you know that saying well I do pop culture as part of my research so I'm allowed to do that so um <laughs> there you I go <laughs> the worst quality horror films about these creatures but yeah. that also is useful because that's Right. It's a it's a um, it's a representation of, you know, maybe not necessarily that thoughtful of um, actual events. But the fact that we wouldn't even have the field of cryptozoology if we didn't have popular culture, they're immediately linked back into each other. So it, the whole thing plays itself out through the lens of popular culture, which um, for me justifies them being able to um, watch all the dumb movies. Perfect. Yeah, I'm conducting research. This film is for my research. <laughs> when I was young, this is how old I am. This is how old I am. Um, when I was a grad student at the summer, in fact, that I was finishing my dissertation, um, I um, would go to uh, 7-Eleven around the corner every morning. No, every Monday morning. It's like nine o'clock when the People magazines were delivered. I can't believe how lame I was. I would wait <laughs> for 7-Eleven for the new People magazine to be delivered because, you know, this was before internet and everything. So that's how I got my gossip. Um, and then I'd run home and I'd read it. And I'd say I was doing research. There wasn't anything I was researching that was in People magazine <laughs> still. No, it was research. It I mean, was it's, research. It's funny the overlap. You know, I'm growing up in a in a really challenging adolescence, and I remember my mom would take me to the grocery store, and she'd buy me copies of Weekly World News. Oh um, yeah, you know, that black and white one with like yeah. Bad Boy and stuff. Oh in it. yeah. Not because you know, obviously, we thought we were getting anything you know scientific out of it, but it was just 
that voyeurism, that like, let's just look at something that's, you know, completely different. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's just kind of even funny how we consume that popular culture when we um, otherwise don't overlap with it. So, right. And again, those tabloids, you know, in this country, absolutely played such a major role in the, you know, the rise of this as a phenomenon here. This in Britain, you know, Britain has always had a super vibrant, um, right, tabloid culture. And so, um, again, it's not accidental that we have such a plethora of creatures in both of our countries because of this long history of, um, you know, having a press that is, you know, titillated by this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, Britain in particular, you know, they love their murderers and, um, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, you go back hundreds of years and find a very thriving um, industry just on the back of um, publicizing murders, you know, um, after they've happened. So it's a good country to have a lot of cryptids and it makes sense that they have a lot because of that. I think it's also interesting you brought up um, the local cryptid, sort of the the PR cryptid. Like, I mean, I'm from New Jersey, the Jersey Devil. That's our mm -hmm. that's our hockey. Which team. is another one that's so hyper localized. It's so yeah, yeah. And but I just think about growing up there, and then again trying to have that like scientific mind and being like, how you can have that duality? Be like, oh yeah, a very scientifically minded person, but yeah, Jersey Devil. I like this anomaly that lives in in your reality and you're like yeah that's normal like what <laughs> so are there though like statues and billboards and fun things of the jersey devil around that area um somewhat there's definitely tchotchkes like you go down to south jersey and it's the whole like oh he's in the pine barrens with the pineys and again there's that sort of idea that he's seen mostly by the poor you know mm population that lives in the middle of nowhere right um so we culturally have that but then yeah i mean besides the hockey team i believe there's some statuary stuff but there's even one of the interesting things about new jersey is i grew up with this magazine called weird new jersey mm. and the whole purpose of it was all the weird roads mm. and the hyper like weird phenomena in the state and like super fun sites and like all of the all the odd things that existed in in the state all the abandoned things all the sightings all the ghosts right. it's interesting we even had a publication dedicated to that in a state that goes from very rural um up to you know very very industrial um city type state so yeah it's just fascinating how all that can happen in just such a small state in a microcosm that's right you know, yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. And which which communities um 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 really embrace their local cryptids and use it as a part of kind of that whole telling a story about ourselves versus which of them are kind of a little ashamed of it. Seems to me that I've just noticed that more communities are starting to embrace them these days, whereas I think there was a lot of shame associated with them early on. But um, now you know, like with the Mothman and stuff, you know, and because that one really is associated with real death. I mean, you know, again, according to the legend, you know, some serious deaths. But fifty years, seventy years later, now it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing for the whole town because mm -hmm. presumably all the people who remember the deaths aren't around anymore. That's true. You can't go into a Scottish shop without some representation of Nessie there. Yeah, I mean, I've never been, but you know, yeah, I can yeah. see him everywhere, and yeah. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. So my hometown, it's on a lake in uh, like southeast Ontario. 
Um, we actually have a Loch Ness monster cousin, as we call it. Um, Kempenfelt Kelly is our. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, so she's not really well known outside the area. And I mean, I grew up here, and it wasn't until my twenties that I learned about her. I just thought that we had these cute little like sea monster toys on the beach near the kids area and never really thought anything of it I was like well that's cute because we're on a lake but it wasn't until um a couple years ago yeah about five years ago I'm looking at the article (laughs) there's uh there was this article that came out talking about the sightings and there was a sighting of this 12 foot creature in the lake but there aren't any good photos from the sighting so it's yeah. just stories yeah. but it was interesting because like you're talking about hyper localities and in a lot of cases something like Loch Ness even though it's local and the Jersey Devil it's local there's still knowledge about it outside the area right. and I feel like my little tiny lake in Barrie Ontario that hasn't <laughs> spread so right. I guess I'm, I'm interested in how those hyper local stories become right popularized well with the with the serpents the lake serpent so it might be slightly different yet again though so part of it i think is that um you know most countries and continents have you know massive lakes and so when there's a really big lake you know with the dark and you don't know what's underneath it and all that then of course we're going to expect there's going to be myths associated with it that are going to be explaining what's underneath it how they all turned into a remarkably plesiosaur-like, you know, creature, all of them, almost all of them across the board. Is it a case of sort of convergent evolution in terms of our, you know, myths? Is that what's happening? Or is it, I kind of feel like for some of them, is that the Loch Ness Monster um, then became kind of globalized. Um, now, and I'm not saying that Mdembi, Mabelli, and, you know, all these other local sea monsters were not didn't exist before Loch Ness but I think they didn't take on their present day characteristics again this is this is this is speculation at this point a lot of this really is but um but but so your monster is hyper you know localized but I also guarantee you that your monster is part of you know this traffic in sea serpent and lake serpent um you know creatures um in particular in terms of the appearance i mean the appearance of them is so specifically to the plesiosaur now of course then your other explanation for that is that we in fact do have uh you know, plesiosaurs that uh, survive 66 whatever million years in every major lake on every continent, maybe, um, maybe. I, I'm not sure that that's gonna be the case, but um, yeah. So so that's another thing too, that, that, you know, there's just so many just rich areas is just, you know, just to make your whole project be the transmission of, um, you know, like serpent narratives and and how they move and how they change and stuff like that um, would be terrific. I think that's really what interests me about this local one for me is I, I mean, there's no photography. And in a lot of cases, like you have photographs out there of Nessie, Mm -hmm. but you don't have photographs of Kelly. And so I wonder if one day there was this marketing pro who got, you know, employee of the month for it, for being like, guys, we're a tourist city. We have a Nessie too now. Yeah, what should we yeah. call it? 
Well, that's and the so other I thing. wonder how yeah. much of it is just mm. marketing pull mm. off of yeah. one or two localized. Myths. And especially because when we're talking about lakes, what are lakes but tourist draws? They absolutely are. And so um, um, I, I forget whether it's Champ or Obi Gobi, but another North American sea surfage um, that the mayor. Um, uh, of that town offered like, I don't know, a million dollar reward for anybody who could bring in evidence of it. Another one, another North American one. Uh, there is a law on books that says that you cannot harm her. I think it's, I forget which one that is too, but you can't harm her. So these are tourist towns. Um, there's just no question that again, the large lakes both provide um, the physical environment for myths about, you know, creatures, unknown creatures to emerge. But then in the, you know, modern world, those same lakes are now um, host to tourists from all over the place. And so absolutely, if we go back to the most um, well-known of all the lake monsters and the tourism that that draws, why wouldn't you if you're a tourist guy in some whatever place, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been awesome, Margot. Uh, does anybody else have any more questions to round this up? Actually, no, it's been absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I know, I feel like I've just opened a box of goodies and there's just so many thoughts yeah. to unpack. This is so cool. I know. Thank I'm you sure so much. Think of questions like after we've left too, yeah. like this, there's so much to explore now. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure there'll be a part two. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah. This has been so fascinating. Your expertise is excellent. I mean, just all the different dimensions you've articulated today is just so neat. And for somebody who maybe has heard of cryptozoology but not heard of anthrozoology, at least can sort of see where the overlap um, can be and, and possibly use one of these avenues as well to examine it. So that's super cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Shifting Lens podcast and we look forward to having you next time.